Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Erlebe die einzigartige Welt von Berlin. Entdecke abwechslungsreiche Kieze, volles Kulturprogramm sowie Parks, Gärten und Seen. Buche jetzt deine Berlin-Reise. Mehr Infos auf visitberlin.de/slash World of Berlin. Whether you call it football or soccer in your part of the world, Match of the Day Africa Top 10 is the podcast from the BBC World Service ranking the best African players. This guy is recognised as the best in the world. Teams. Ball coming, turn, boom. And the biggest moments in African football. The whole world remembers that. Remember that, yeah. It's not just African fans. Match of the Day Africa Top 10. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. It appears that I've been shrunk down to tiny proportions and um, currently... Floating through, believe it or not, with convenient arrows to guide me along a duck's vagina in what can only be described as a classic use of VR. Um, there's a sentence I never thought I'd be saying. This is the work of friend and colleague, zoologist Jules Howard. Famously, okay, male ducks, as you know, Ben, often have quite enormous um, uh, endowments, let's say, and they can sort of twizzle and coil and spiral out of the male duck really, really quickly. Jules built his VR experience alongside behavioural ecologist Professor Patricia Brennan from Mount Holyoke College in the US. It was her that said, you know what, I've got a model. I've got a three-dimensional model of the, um, the duck's vagina, and once I heard that, as you, you know, as you know, my eyes lit up and I was like, well, if you've got the model, I can build a virtual reality. The first time uh, I put the headset on and gave it a go, I was like, I'm the only person in history to have like done this. And I felt like I was going to the moon <laughs> or the bottom of the sea, you know, really getting a chance to to explore this. So, yeah, it was fun. Um, it got people talking, which is exactly what I wanted to do. If you haven't gathered already, this final episode is going to be a bit of a wild ride. We'll be encountering brain implants, pulse-reading watches, beds that can track your sleep, and a vest that can plug you into the stock market. Strap in. I'm Ben Garrett, Professor of Evolutionary Biology at the University of East Anglia. I specialise in how our group in the animal kingdom has evolved and adapted over time. I'm fascinated by how the world around us has shaped us and how we interact with our surrounding environments. At the very forefront of this are our senses, that collective of sight, smell, taste, hearing and touch. In this series, I want to find out not only how our senses allow us to understand and explore what's around us, but how we might borrow from nature and harness and develop technologies and maybe even redefine what it means to see, hear and feel along the way. We can sense almost everything in our external world, from that butterfly gently landing on our fingertip to that last explosive splutter of an impossibly distant supernova. But our perception of the world stops at our skin. Now, for the first time in our long and complex biological story, Aided by a whole suite of technology and innovation, 
we're able to sense our internal world, looking beneath the surface to better understand not the world around us, but the world within us. Virtual reality is something many of us might be aware of, but some people have, in recent years, developed some incredible ways to use that technology. Big red panic button in front of me, which is always a good sign. Right now, you're hearing me in a VR film called Goliath. Ben. It tells the story of someone with schizophrenia, told from their perspective, and paints a vivid picture of their world. It's astounding. That's the first time I've ever done or experienced VR with, a, with what I call a therapeutic application in terms of medical benefits. I can really see how that would benefit medical care professionals and friends and family who are, are suffering alongside those who have mental health problems. That was, that was tough. That was really tough. But I can really see how VR is an amazing tool in trying to explain that. May Abdullah is one of the co-directors at Anagram, a company who are interested in pushing our understanding beyond what we might expect from VR. You're just wearing a headset in a room somewhere in Bristol, but for a moment, your body's responses are as if that isn't actually where you are. I completely felt that. Um, really quickly, I felt my chest tighten up a little bit and I felt quite nervous. My palms were sweaty. There was no reason to feel like that. And suddenly, as you say, I was in quite a quite a vulnerable situation and I felt immersed in someone's experiences actually. It made me think what sort of questions can we address with VR for example that we can't with traditional uh, mediums. We have all of these senses and we can tune in or not tune in to them and we can really not just tune in but we can start to raise our awareness of those senses. I think there's perhaps an even more potent afterglow with VR that's not just kind of the next 20 minutes, but without you necessarily being aware of it, it stays with you on this kind of more profound level. Suddenly you have a bit more of a conscious connection as opposed to just the kind of blurry days of experience that we have for most of our lives. What next? Do we incorporate... AR, augmented reality? Are we going to incorporate more of our sensors? Where do you see this sort of technology going in the, in the future? So, yeah, with Goliath, I think we learned how important it was for people to be able to relate to and describe their experiences in a way that wasn't about language. So when we say these words like psychosis and schizophrenia, or now we're working on an experience about ADHD, there's a huge distance between these terms and what it feels like in our skin and what it causes our lives to feel like and the behavioural repercussions of that. And, and there's this gulf, I think, in terms of our understanding of what these terms mean and what the experience of these terms are. You know, there's something completely powerful about how that, as a kind of a cultural world can take hold in terms of just a paradigm for like talking about what we're experiencing and like you said you know having this awareness of our senses and how that forms our identities. May has showed us how VR could help us turn inwards and see how we might start to use it to explore the inner world of others creating an experience of immersion that can be deep, profound and meaningful to us. 
In the last five years or so, more and more wearable tech is making its way to market. And these wearables can include everything from watches to remote-operated dildos, as we found out in the last episode. Built into them are sensors which can remotely detect things about ourselves that we might find surprising. In the Coros Apex Pro 2 watch, just one of the many high-tech sports watches on the market, you'll find an underwater heart rate monitor, a pulse oximeter, an altimeter, and thermometer. In fact, the watch has more than 10 different sensors all working together to analyse your body and behaviour. It's aimed at runners and other athletes, and could help them improve their training. Which is good, because I've got a big race coming up later this year. Could this watch really help me become a better long-distance runner? So I'm quite a keen runner, and I've just invested in a new running watch. And it's full of sensors. It can detect my heart rate, my elevation change, even how far apart my steps are. And the whole thing is... It's meant to tailor my running and improve my running. And I'm really interested to see just how well it changes my running experience. Right, come on, Jack. Let's go. Come on. New wearable tech is showing us things about ourselves that we didn't already know, helping us to analyse and detect things in parts of our body that usually would only happen in a hospital or doctor's surgery. In America, one piece of health tech that has been a hit is Emotive, a mini EEG headset which promises to improve our focus and concentration. I first came across Emotive actually as an artist and neuroscientist. Dr Erica Warp runs the product team for Emotive. Humans are actually quite poor at objectively understanding what's going on in our brains. Technology that can objectively measure our uh, certain brain states, like how stressed we are, uh, how attentive we are, how engaged we are. We can use this information by feeding it back to us through the devices that are around us on a daily basis to help us make better choices in our day-to-day lives. Well, I've brought three different EEG devices. So Mm -hmm. this is electroencephalography. These measure the electrical activity of our brains um, using sensors. This is a basic technology that's been around for a very long time, but traditionally these devices are tethered to a big computer, they cost tens of thousands of dollars, and it means that the kind of data that is collected from those devices usually is in a laboratory setting or a medical setting and kind of confined in terms of its context. I'm finding that whilst we're chatting, my eyes keep flicking to my right here to, to look <laughs> at one of these boxes in particular. Can we can we open They're one? Very can we? They are oh, I'm, I'm like a kid with a present at Christmas. I want to see what's inside, especially this one. So if I try these on, are we able to see these working in real time? Yeah, so what you're looking at here is a real-time visualization of your performance state. So we've taken the the algorithms that we've built for this and other devices that are looking at attention, which is how focused you are on a particular task. That's the opposite to being distracted, where you're switching your focus around. We're looking at cognitive load, Mm -hmm. which is how much your brain is working, how much the wheels are spinning to perform work. 
And then we're also looking at acute stress. You're actually in a wandering state where you're, you know, you're not super focused on a particular task. We can actually look to see what's going on with these individual metrics. Yeah, so your stress is a bit high. That's because you said I'm not focusing. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were trying to focus on a task and you see that your brain is, continues to be in a wandering state for a while, mm -hmm. you may decide, hey, you know what, this is not this is not a good time for me to be doing this task. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go chat to a colleague. I'm going to go take a walk outside. I'm going to go do some exercise. And that may kind of reactivate my brain, let it rest. Uh, and then I can come back uh, with more freshness and try this again. But could emotive really be helpful as a tool for everyday life? There's no doubt that with rates of cancers, cholesterol, diabetes, poor mental health and a whole host of medical problems skyrocketing, maybe our super sensors can be rerouted to detect what's going on inside our bodies to help us in a dazzling and often overwhelming world. Imagine if we were able to see that anxiety we've been experiencing recently or feel that slight change in our heart rate over the last few months. I get lots of adverts for use this device to optimise your diet. Dr Nicola Guess is a registered dietitian and diabetes researcher at the University of Oxford. I mean, it, it's selling a product and it's, it's aimed at the worried well, frankly. And it's almost like to create a demand, you need to have a problem in the first place. So what yeah. these companies are often doing is saying, create fear in people's minds, like, oh my God, maybe that's me. And then boom, we've got a product for you. She's, well, sceptical about some of these new technologies we're seeing. I think it is capitalising on an anxiety everyone has about, is there something I'm missing? Um, and often these adverts use optimise, optimise your health. And you think, that, sound, that sounds good. Um, whereas me as a researcher, I'm thinking, OK, what does optimise mean? Uh, and I think that's my concern, is the lack of evidence behind these claims. What are we talking about? I mean, I, I will readily admit I'm wearing a watch right now that tells me how many steps a day I've done, what my cadence, what my stride is, what my pace is, what my heart rate is doing, how many f flights I've gone up and down per day. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm not going to say obsessed. I'm, I'm, I'm tied into my watch quite significantly. But there's other stuff out there. There are things like Fitbits and, and patches. So what sort of tech are we talking about to monitor our health uh, right now? So the primary tech that I see, and this, this might be being a nutrition person, is continuous glucose monitors that measure glucose. Um, but there are devices that, that uh, like an EEG, which is like a brain scan, which claim to measure concentration. Um, there are devices that claim to measure stress, how much stress you're feeling. There are devices, and I believe even beds, that can record your movement while you're sleeping. Um, and in combination with your pulse and things like that can determine or claim they can how well you've slept. So those are the main ones that I see. And what's your, I mean, either research-based feeling or gut feeling on this one, can it, I inverted commas, optimise me? Can it make you better? Does it, does it affect us in a way that's demonstrably worth doing? Or, or is it preying on us? I, to be honest, would very much doubt it. And I don't want to give the impression that improving one's nutrition or exercise cannot be helpful. But it's not to say that you couldn't slightly improve, maybe some measures. 
I would be very surprised if we saw demonstrable improvements in your health. After wearing my watch for a few weeks, I wanted to consider the impact it was having on me. Was it really a helpful tool, or was it actually hindering the process of my running enjoyment? I guess a big thing is now I've got the watch. Do I keep it? Do I go back to not using one? And actually, I have the last couple of days when I was charging my watch up. I went for a few runs without my watch. And there was a sense of freedom a little bit because I've got into the routine already, which is the moment I stop my run, I instantly press stop, I instantly download it. But the one that's got me really is the pace and also the distance I have between each stride. And actually, I've become so nerdy and so quickly that I've reduced my stride. So I know that my stride is 1.1 metres now, which is down by about 15 centimetres, even from a few weeks ago. And I'm shortening my stride, which doesn't sound much but it's allowing me to run a little bit faster. And actually, I've already noted my legs aren't as tired on a 10-kilometre run, for example, so optimising how I run, just by tweaking a few little things here, has made my running experience a little bit nicer already. I think the key to success with a running watch, or actually any sort of wearable tech device that's there to monitor, optimise, improve your health in any, in any aspect, really, is to not let it dominate. This isn't life-saving. I'm not someone who needs to monitor certain levels of chemicals in my body in order to, to medicate. This is improve my running. At the end of the day, it's only running. And so I think as long as I don't become obsessive about it and I don't become driven by the tech, it can enhance and implement and improve and, and optimise something I already love. It might not be the great big fix, but it could help us spot things and change small habits. But using sense-based technology isn't always limited to wearable watches. It stretches all the way to brain implants. And as far-fetched as brain implants may sound, they are being trialled. They're being used for people whose lives are being affected by a whole host of medical conditions that limit their interaction with the world around them. Dr David Petrino is an assistant professor of rehabilitation and human performance at Ikhen School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And he's been working directly alongside those who have undertaken the surgery to help them learn to use the technology. David, there's very often this sense of when we talk about immersive tech and wearable tech, it's not long before we go down that wonderful, terrifying rabbit hole of, and then we'll have brain implants, where we can do everything from communicating with each other to paying our taxes to to ordering a coffee 10 minutes before we arrive at the cafe. What's the reality of, of brain implants? Uh, for better or for worse, there have been certain people in the, the brain-computer interface space that have thrust the term brain-computer interface into the public consciousness. People know what these devices are. And we find ourselves having to have these conversations around what exactly will this technology be able to do Brain implantation technology, brain-computer interfaces have um, often been oversold in terms of what their utility can be. Um, I, I think right now where we are in the moment, we're experiencing uh, a situation where brain-computer interfaces actually are at the cusp of moving into common clinical usage for people with severe disabilities. But interestingly, you've already sort of touched upon this, but for those people 
who are involved with this technology and this innovation, it is life-changing. You mentioned people who are incredibly, very often, uh, disabled or, or, or affected by one or, or several medical conditions. This really changes quality of life. And as you said, gives them a sense of agency. What sort of things are we talking about? We're working with a technology called Synchron. And basically, this is a electrode that enters the body through a large vessel in your neck, which is called the jugular vein. And as it passes through your jugular vein, it then moves into another large vessel called the superior sagittal sinus. It heals into the blood vessel wall. We we leave it there. It, It heals into the wall of the blood vessel. And from that vantage point it can it can uh, record brain activity uh, clearly enough that if somebody tries to perform a movement like they try to move their ankle or they try to move their wrist the brain implant can pick up on that and it can enact some sort of command it can be the difference between having very little quality of life and having a great deal of quality of life i'm hoping that you know with this movement, we're going to be able to see individuals who are able to really restore a lot of agency to their lives. Um, we're not talking about, um, you know, precognition or uh, or reading someone's thoughts or thinking a word and that word appearing on, on the screen. That's not what these technologies do. That doesn't make sense from a physiological standpoint to expect David has told us how the use of brain implants might be more moderate than some particularly larger-than-life and often controversial names in the tech world might have us believe. But clinical trials are taking place with a focus on how the tech could be life-changing for those with conditions that so often prevent them from being able to interact with the world. But that loss of sensors, that loss of being able to communicate and how our technology might help us engineer new ways to adapt in the future is something that also fascinates Professor David Eagleman, a neuroscientist at Stanford University. He's the co-founder of Neosensory, a company producing wearable devices capable of taking in information that is not easily accessible. David, I think you and I have an interesting combination of backgrounds and experiences here. So from my perspective as an evolutionary biologist and and yours as a a neuroscientist and someone who deals with tech, I'm kind of left in this sense of, yeah, I'm almost upset at our own species. Why have we developed for this long and only gotten these senses? Why, Why do you think that is? Well, it's for a few reasons. Um, One is that it's all we've needed in terms of it is sufficient for us to get by with the senses that we have. And of course, the senses that we have are carved very carefully to what's going on around us. Because you're right, it is limited. We don't have smell like a dog. We don't have electroreception like a lot of fish. We don't have magnetoreception like many animals do to to navigate the planet. And so I think... um, marrying our technology to our biology, we are just at a moment now where we can expand our senses. And when you say expanding our senses, I mean, first of all, in my mind, I'm a big sci-fi fan. I'm I'm suddenly getting visions of peering through walls with x-ray vision and, and feeling where my dog has been just by smelling where he's been around my flat. I probably could do. But you're not talking about that, are you? You're talking about marrying up the biology with, with the technology here. What do you mean by that? Well, so in my lab, what we started doing many years ago was 
taking in information from different senses and then feeding that in via patterns of vibration on the skin. So originally we built a vest with vibratory motors all over it and it could translate any kind of data stream into patterns on the skin and that climbs up your spinal cord into your brain. And if something is informationally relevant, your brain will figure it out. Because the key is that all of the senses that we have, our eyes, ears, nose, fingertips, and so on, these are just converting information sources from the world into spikes in your brain. These, you know, electrical spikes that are running around in the brain. And your brain lives in silence and darkness, and it just learns how to interpret these based on what is relevant to it. And if you can feed in other kinds of data, then uh, the brain has no problem figuring that out. I think my fear would be that we're almost knowing too much. We're peering through the looking glass and and almost leaving nothing to mystery. But it's almost nice from your perspective to hear that we're not losing that. I guess that magic of, of humanity in terms of our interpersonal skills. I, I don't know that we're not losing the magic. I think we're transforming the magic into something else. I mean, look, when someone goes on a date now, they've already looked at social media and they know a lot about the person, whether or not they let on. Um, so things do change, and I think there is an opportunity here for greater empathy. We're not in a position anymore where we are creatures that have to wait for Mother Nature's sensory gifts on her time scale. We are in the process and have been for a long time of detecting other kinds of information. And so far, it hasn't ruined us. So far, in a sense, it makes us more empathic and more able to understand that not everyone is just like us and that uh, that we're all uh, a bit different and we need to build our society appropriately. We have a collection of five senses, sight, hearing, taste, smell, and touch. And you know, we do pretty well as a result of them. Some of our relatives in nature have fewer than these five, while others have more. Some have the same senses as us, while others appear to possess alien powers. A big question I've encountered in this series is, what's next? Will we develop new senses or train our existing ones to the extent we can see like hawks and smell like our closest canine companions? And the truth is, I don't know. We're already honing our existing senses, allowing us to see stress in others, hear whole environments in distress, and touch those closest to us, even if we're miles apart. But will we truly develop new super senses. From the point of view of an evolutionary biologist, nah, probably not. Evolution doesn't really roll like that. What I am seeing, however, and to me at least what represents the next landmark in that roller coaster ride of our sensory evolutionary journey, is the use of technology to permit our existing senses to experience a place never experienced before. That hidden world of us. And now, for the very first time, we are conquering that final frontier and are able to sense the complex, delicate and intimate world inside ourselves. What we discover and what we do with these discoveries is far from certain.
Match of the Day Africa Top 10 is the new podcast celebrating the best of African football. It must be his best ever goal. Incredible. Each week, Yaya Toure, Efren Okoku and me, Gabriel Zakwani, try to decide who should be crowned number one in our best of African football list. This way it gets interesting. What a player, what a player. I think we know who number one is. There'll be some familiar faces. I play with both of them. Both are special. And some tricky decisions. Guys, stop being emotional. <laughs> We're talking about being realistic. I won't argue anymore. <laughs> and we might even make it onto a list or two ourselves. I just needed one list. You've been in many lists. <laughs> we don't need even this list again. That's Match of the Day Africa Top 10 from the BBC World Service. Woo, that's the one. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Einzigartige Welt von Berlin. Entdecke abwechslungsreiche Kieze, volles Kulturprogramm sowie Parks, Gärten und Seen. Buche jetzt eine Berlin-Reise. Mehr Infos auf visitberlin.de slash worldofberlin.